1936, <clears throat> one of the most famous duos of all time, a comedy duo, Abbott and Costello, got together. They met each other and they became uh, quite good friends and, and they formed their act together in uh, 1936. This was around the end of the, the vaudeville era. And they developed a, a classic skit, a classic comedy routine that you, you probably have heard of. It's this, uh, this thing that they commonly referred to called baseball. But it was essentially this, this uh, conversation that they were having with each other. Uh, and, and the audience came to know it as who's on first. And in this skit, there, there is one of these men who's talking to the other, and he's explaining to his baseball team, and uh, he's explaining his baseball team, and, and one of the guys is like, yeah, I'm going to join the team. Can you tell me about the players? And he's like, well, we've got who on first, we've got uh, uh, what on second base, and we got I don't know on third. And the guy's like, well, just tell me who's on first. And he's like, yes, exactly, who's on first. And there's this whole, there's this whole interplay of comedy about one guy uh, kind of, not understanding that the pronouns are the names of these people. Well, one person is repeatedly just getting frustrated and being like, why won't you tell me who's on first? And the guy's like, yes, who's on first? He's like, what? He's like, no, what's on second? And it, and it goes on and on, and it's just, it's kind of the basis for a lot of the, the modern comedy that we have today. But the point of, of that is it only works because there's so much confusion over the pronouns. Now, that's kind of going to be the case today. This is a classic in our passage, a classic who's on first. Because Moses seems to keep thinking whenever God says, I'm going to do something, he keeps thinking that the Lord's saying that you're going to do it. And the Lord's like, I'm going to do this. And Moses is like, I'm not going to do that. And, and the Lord's like, I'm going to do this. And Moses is like, no, I'm not going to do that. And, and so we'll, we'll, we'll see this as we, we kind of look at the text this morning. It's, it's really this argument over who gets the credit and who is accomplishing this work. Now, we're going to look at it in kind of three sections, the call of Moses, the excuses of Moses, and the power of God. So the call of Moses, the excuses of Moses, and the power of God. We'll look first at the call of Moses, starting in verse 1 as we read. We find that Moses is keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. Now, earlier we saw that his father-in-law was called Ruel, and this word here, Jethro, it simply is a title that means excellency or his excellency. And so he's called Jethro throughout the rest of the book of Exodus. And so we see that Moses here, he has been out with the sheep. He is tending them as he came to rescue Jethro's daughters at the well. The last thing we kind of looked at in Exodus chapter 2, he rescues them from some shepherds that are harassing his, uh, Jethro's daughters, and so Moses waters them, and he becomes, he marries into the family, and now he's kind of taken on this family business. He's driven from Egypt into Midian, and he goes deeper and deeper into the desert. Now, shepherding was a common occupation at the time. Uh, many people especially in that desert region, held this job. But Moses' new job here, although it is commonplace, it's quite significant. Although it is just a, a kind of an everyday, run-of-the-mill job, it's quite important. Because this vocation, this calling that Moses has to be a shepherd will indeed shape his character, and soon he will become the shepherd of God's people as he leads them out of Egypt. And shepherding uh, is kind of, it's the, it's the choice description of God's leaders. We, we find this uh, throughout scripture. We see Moses, uh, David was a shepherd before he was made king, and Jesus is described in John 10 as the good shepherd. And so, Moses, he leads his flock to the wilderness, the west side, it tells us. And throughout Scripture, this is kind of laying forth for us a pattern. Here, 
the wilderness plays a huge role throughout Scripture. It's the place where God prepares his people. It's the training ground for those he calls. It's the place where God meets with man. It's in the wilderness that man is totally cut off from society, from civilization. He's dependent upon God for his daily needs. Throughout Scripture, we we see uh, various examples of God meeting with man in the wilderness. In Genesis chapter 28, this is where Jacob first has this dream, seeing this stairway uh, to heaven. And that leads to this encounter in the wilderness with Moses. And this is going to continue to lay out a pattern of preparation and training in the wild. Now, at this moment, it's important for us to stop and take note because this book, Exodus, lays at a specific place in the canon of Scripture. It's informing how you read and understand the Gospels later on. In 1 Kings, Elijah is going to meet with God in the wilderness, and then later we hear John the Baptist, who preaches repentance, crying out as a voice in the wilderness. There's this idea that there's this training ground that where God is preparing his people, those who he will use, in the wilderness. It's in the wilderness for 40 days that Jesus does battle with Satan and gains a victory over him there using uh, Scripture. And that training ground there of Jesus battling the enemy in the wilderness paves the way to the cross. Now, Moses, he has been leading his flock in the wilderness. He's become humble. He has been faithful. Let me elaborate a little bit on what I mean that he has been faithful. You see, up until this point, we don't really have any sense of the time that has gone by. But Acts chapter 7 tells us, at this point... In Moses' life, in Exodus 3, Moses has been a shepherd for 40 years. He's just been out there by himself with the sheep, chilling, protecting them, learning the way of the wild, learning how to navigate and to depend on the Lord for 40 years. This was mind-boggling. He was 40 years when he rolled up to Midian in the first place. He got out of Egypt when he was 40. He spent 40 years there learning that society, that culture. He now becomes a fugitive from justice, is on the run. And now he's been a shepherd for 40 years. Just like the most commonplace job, nothing special out in the wilderness. As far as society is concerned, Moses just spent 40 years with nothing to show for it. He just wasted 40 years of his life. Now, this is of great encouragement to me because, like, I'm not 40. <laughs> so I'm like, all right. Like, I, I still, like, have, have to, like, wait a little bit. Like, there's still probably, like, more that the Lord has in store. So if you feel like you've been doing nothing, you know, we have this great pattern of, like, God preparing his people So you should know what you're doing right now, the choices that you're making, the things that God has you in, however large or small they uh, feel to you, no matter what season God has called you into, it's not insignificant. It's hugely important. It's shaping your character, preparing you for what he has next. Now, I'm sure when Moses was in the palace there in Egypt, living as a prince, he didn't think that he was being prepared for the wilderness next. And probably in the midst of the wilderness, it didn't seem that way. But yet, God is preparing Moses. Moses begins this work of rescuing uh, the children of Israel. You know, when he's, like, after 40 years of being a shepherd. It's like, I don't even know how you think about that, being called to that. It's just crazy. 
Now, Moses is also out here in a desert. It's not like he's in, like, in the most plush environment. Like, this isn't the most sweetest work area. It's not like he, he's not like the Psalm 23 shepherd where he's like, oh, I'm like with, like, like, you know, the streams of water and the sheep are like sleeping and everything's like all peaceful. And this isn't the description here. Moses is in the desert. He's in the wild. He's dealing with danger. Everything is barren and dry. He's used to things burning up. But it's precisely in those seasons that God prepares his people to be used by him. And so you can be encouraged. I'm encouraged. Moses didn't get like a real great opportunity to serve the Lord for like 40 years. He, he, he lived most of his life. Now he f- takes these sheep to the mountain called Horeb, mountain of God. He writes this in hindsight. So he calls this uh, Horeb and he calls it the, it's what it's known as uh, there. But in hindsight, he calls this the mountain of God. He's recording this in hindsight uh, th- because this Horeb, this mountain of Horeb, turns out to be Sinai. What he will return to, what he will lead his, the children of Israel to, back to in uh, chapter 20, when they meet with God. Now an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold... The bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Now, Moses is walking around. He sees a bush. It's it's on fire. You know, it was just not really like a huge deal to him. But he sees that there's something different about this. I'm sure he saw lots of bushes on fire at some point, you know, walking around in the desert. But here... This one is not consumed. It's not burned. And and we're told uh, that's one of the the things about this. But the second thing that we're told is that it's uh, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. Now, uh, some scholars think that this is a Christophany. This is an Old Testament manifestation of uh, Jesus, that although he wasn't in this the same bodily form. This is actually Jesus who is there. Uh, You can find similar uh, descriptions in Genesis chapter 16, Judges chapter 2, Judges 6, Judges 3. There's like a a whole bunch of areas in there. Uh, So this is the pre-incarnate Christ. I'm, I'm cool with that. I don't have any problem with that. The point of this is not about getting caught up in the bush itself or the, the process of it, but who holds power over nature? You see, God, throughout the book of Exodus specifically, he typically will manifest himself to his people in fire and in smoke. We'll see this in chapter 13 and chapter 19 and 40. Uh, you look throughout the rest of uh, the Torah. You can find this in the book of Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, but here we find that the bush not burning is the important thing. Now, it's not like scientifically, like let's get nerdy about like how is that possible? That's, that's not the point. And, and, and Moses doesn't want us to chase that down. And we don't want to spend all this time focusing on that. Because God makes specific points to Moses. If you, if you follow... The first thing we want to understand here is that the bush not burning is God's demonstration of his nature as the creator over creation. He is the one who holds the normal expectation that you and I would have a fire, that it would burn something and it would, you know, char to the ground and and there would just be ashes. He is the only one who can hold nature in check. He does not allow it to consume the bush. And so Moses here, he sees that, he's interested, and then he takes time to to go check it out, to linger. He's like, this is crazy. Let me go see this. Now, oftentimes when the Lord's trying to get our attention, we're not paying attention. We need to to look at what he's doing and not just be like, I got to get on with my life. But we need to just take a second and linger and be like, let's go check out this crazy bush. That seems like it's burning, but it's not really. And see what the Lord will do, what he will say to us. 
Now, verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. So God calls out to Moses two times. This is uh, a cultural sort of thing that we would find in, uh, in early, or I guess in ancient society. This, this would be a, a, a term called the repetition of endearment. Now, I didn't know about that. I had to read about it in some crazy book. But it's noteworthy. Repetition of endearment. And, and the point of this, uh, you know, it, it always stuck out to me in Scripture. The point of this is that a name would be repeated again and again as a sign of affection or friendship. It would call out as a method of communication that was not so formal, but was showing a way for simple relationship to begin. This happens to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, Jacob in Genesis chapter 46. Uh, there's the, you know, the, probably the most famous passage that you remember of Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 3, where he's like, you know, three years old and the Lord's calling to him and, you know, we all have, if you've ever had, like, to deal with uh, kids, you all kind of have those stories of, like, kids getting up out of bed too many times. Like, dude, what is your deal? Stay in bed. It's like, someone's calling me. Like, that's the Lord calling Samuel. He calls him Samuel. Samuel. It's, it's crazy. So this repetition of endearment that happens. And here the Lord is calling Moses. And then the Lord responds to him, because Moses says, here I am, here, here I am. The Lord responds to him in verse 5, and he says, Then he said, Do not come near. Take, off, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, what God wants him to know right away, he sets the tone for him. The first thing that man needs to know about God is that God is holy. He needs to know, Moses needs to know, that he is in the presence of a holy God. He's told right away, do not come near. Now, he needs these specific instructions because we are used to coming near. When something, when we are in awe of something, we're designed to want to come near. We're designed originally to be near to God. In the garden, it was God who created man to have a relationship with him and walk with him and spend time and enjoy him in the garden. So man is naturally, has this desire when he sees God to be like, I don't want that, but I do. There's, it feels like home. We, we want to be near to things that are huge, and they, they put us in, uh, in just wonder and awe. We're amazed at great things. And so Moses, he's like, he sees us, and he's on his way to take a closer look. He's like, this is nuts. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come over here and check out this tree and, or this bush and, and see what's, what's going on. If you think about it in our, in our culture and society, in human nature, this is why... At concerts, at sporting events, like all the best tickets are the closest and they're the most expensive. Because you want to be as close as possible to the, the greatness, to the wonder of, of that event, that uh, feat that's about to happen, that transaction that you will witness. You want to be as close as possible. If you truly are a, a fan you're not like, oh, I'll just sit as far away as possible. You want to be as close as possible. As close to the action as possible. And the greater the intimacy, the greater the interest. They, they work together. But here, Moses is told, stay back. God, who is the most wonderful, most holy, is the most deserving of our interest and affection, keeps Moses away. It's God, God's holiness that creates a separation from all things unholy. Now, that's simply what holiness means. It means there's uh, a separation. Something which is holy is set apart. 
And it's God's nature and character that keeps man separated from God. Because man is, is sinful, man cannot approach God. It's only through the work of Christ that, and, and His perfect life that makes man holy that man is able to then approach God. It's why such a stark in, uh, contrast when we, when we see here in, in this book, Moses is told to not come near. The children of Israel are told don't, don't approach the mountain of Sinai where God's uh, manifesting himself. But then later, after Christ has been crucified for our sins and raised for our justification, then we're told in the New Testament epistles that Christians are able to draw near to God boldly to the throne of grace. We can just, just bust through the doors and enter as God as our Father and have full interest. There's no don't come near, but it's come as close as you want and know and enjoy our risen Lord. It's a totally different contrast when there is that means of atonement for our sin. And so Moses is told here, take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. Now the location is holy because God is there. Not because he's like in a place that happens to be like holy ground and God's like, oh, I'm going to show up at the holy spot. But it's holy because God is there. And, and so Moses takes off his sandals. This is a sign of, of reverence. And he acknowledges God's holiness by removing his sandals. Later in the book of Joshua, he'll be given the same commands in Joshua chapter 5. And here's what the Lord speaks to him in verse 6. He said, I am the Lord, or I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who were in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Now, God first wants Moses to know about his holiness, but God's second thing that he points out to Moses, his second declaration is that he wants Moses to understand that he's faithful. He connects the dots to his faithful, faithfulness. He says, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. I am the same one who will be faithful. I keep my promises. You know who you're dealing with. So he says, I'm holy, but I'm faithful. And I will make a way for restoration. He's connecting his present action in Moses, his call to Moses, to his past promises to the people of God. And so Moses, he realizes how... how I mean, it just goes to another level for Moses. And so he realizes, and he hides his face, afraid to look at God. Now in verse 8, here's what God says. I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come up to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So here's God's declaration to Moses. I have seen their difficulty. I have witnessed, I have heard their cry. And he, and he says he's in, he intends to do something about it. In verse 8, he says, I have come down to deliver them and to bring them up. This is language that God uses when he intends to intervene in humanity. And this language, it really uh, sets out a foreshadowing of the language of the incarnation, Christ's enfleshing, what we hear of in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. If you want to flip over there, you can, you can see. Uh, Christ descends to bring us up. It is his work, 
his job, his ability that he puts off his own glory to bring us up because we cannot save ourselves. The Lord knows that the children of Israel cannot save themselves. And so he says, I have come down to deliver them up, to bring them up. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it describes the language of the incarnation this way. Uh, Have this mind among yourselves, verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Christ descends. It's through his riches. He, get, he gives of his riches so that we who are poor might become rich. We ascend with him. We are exalted with him. And as he accomplishes this work in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, if you read on, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above all name, that every tongue should confess to the glory of God that Jesus Christ is Lord. So there's this descending so that he might reascend, but with his people. Now, the Lord comes to rescue and save their promised land. And this is the classic, if you've not heard this before, but this is kind of how it's classically described, the land flowing with milk and honey, which seems awesome if you have a biscuit. But if you don't, it's not so great because it's like, wow, that's just a sticky mess. Now, what he's getting at here is a a, a metaphorical description. This isn't candy land, but he's describing a fertile Land, the land of Canaan, because cows make milk and they need an abundance of green grass and vegetation to graze on. Bees make honey and they need plenty of flowers and forage. So this is going to be a a well-watered land, rich with vegetation, plenty for their livestock and animals to graze on, to provide for them milk and honey. God has heard their cry. He's seen their oppression. He promises to act in response, promises to give them these good things. And Moses, being a Hebrew, growing up in the land of Egypt, he's got to be pumped, right? I mean, it's like, this is what we've been waiting for. He's got to be so excited, one, at the appearance and encounter with God, And he's got to be overjoyed at God's plan. Like, he's going to deliver the children of Israel from oppression and bring them into the land of abundance. But now the excitement kind of comes to this screeching halt because Moses kind of, he hears hears like the needle scratching the record. It's like, oh, wait a second. Look at verse 10. So God continues his his, uh, plan here for Moses. So he says, come, Moses. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So God's plan is revealed. God's going to send this humble shepherd, the Egyptian outcast, to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. Now, this is the point where the pronouns start to get confused. This is when we get the the who's on first happening. Because God says, I'm going to do this. And Moses hears, no, I'm going to do this. Moses doesn't seem to hear correctly, but Moses can only focus on himself, even though it's God who says, I'm going to rescue and save. And Moses will be the means by which God works out his redemptive strength in the life of the children of Israel. And so we see the beginning of Moses' excuses. He does this five times. He's just got them lined up. He's ready to go. Look at the first excuse, verse 11. So he hears that God's going to send him, verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So his first excuse is like, who am I? 
Now, 40 years earlier, Moses was on top of the world. He was a prince of Egypt. He thought he was acting like this crazy deliverer when he killed the Egyptian taskmaster and was like, oh, like you guys are in trouble. I'll rescue you. The Lord has put me here. But now Moses seems to think he's not up to the task. He feels like his ability is lacking. Perhaps he feels unqualified. But these are exactly the type of people that God uses. Perhaps God is calling you to obey him. He's calling you to do something for him. He's leading you into something. He isn't looking at your qualifications or your ability. He, 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 that's not a part of his equation. Like When he calls someone to do something, when he leads us, the Lord knows what he's doing. He doesn't assess us like this job application, like, well, it doesn't seem like you're up for the task because like, you're pretty weak sauce. You don't have any skills. You know, you blow it a lot. Like, that's, that's, those aren't a part of his equation. He says, I want you to do something, and I'm going to help you do it. Look at how God responds to Moses' first excuse. Who am I? Verse 12. But he, he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, God sends, he responds basically in this very straightforward manner. He says, I will be with you. The literal translation is, I am with you. I am with you. Will be in, 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 in the Hebrew is the, is the same as I am. I am with you is what he's getting at. What God's pointing out to Moses is there wasn't a time when he wasn't with him. He wasn't directing his steps, leading him to be the instrument that God would use. Moses asks the correct question here, right? Because it's a little bit logical to be like, look, like, who the heck am I to do this? He's operating in a pretty decent level of humility, but he's focusing inwardly. Because it's not Moses who's going to rescue and save. God says, I want you to go do this. And I'm calling you to go do this. And I'm going to send you. And Moses says, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? But the Lord just simply responds like, you're not. I am. I am. I am the one who will do this. Now, this is a bit of foreshadowing also. We see in his next question. In verse 13, then Moses says to God, here's his second excuse. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall we say to them? Now, this kind of seems like a little bit like a, you know, like a kid question, like, well, what's his name then? Right? That's like, prove it. What's his name? Moses here is inwardly focused. He is worried that the children of Israel will see his lack of qualifications and they will not receive him. He's worried about his reputation. Okay, maybe if you're going to if you're going to be with me, you're going to go do this. What if I go there and then they're like who sent you? They don't receive him. Now, likely they wouldn't know who he was. <laughs> Probably all the Israelites know of Moses is that, if they know anything at all, is that he's born there, a Hebrew, but he grew up as an Egyptian, he committed murder, and now he's a fugitive. Like, that's probably, like, they're all they know about him, if anything. And so Moses knows that he cannot go in his own authority and it's not that his questions are entirely stupid, but his heart gets revealed the more that he asks, the more that he reveals. And so he asks the name of God. How, who, who am I supposed to say that sends me? Because they're not going to know who I am. And so God says to Moses, in verse 14, I am who I am. 
And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, the, the, if you say that God has sent me to you, we want to understand that God is a title. God is a title. It's not God's name, but it's a title. His personal name is revealed to us here, where he describes himself as I am. Or if you look at the uh, original text, the letters line up and they are Y-H-W-H. I could break this down in real nerdy Hebrew fashion, but it's not helpful. Here's what it ends up translating out to be. It it, it translates out to be uh, the pronunciation Yahweh. But he says he wants to be identified as I am. Now, in previous revelation of God's name in the book of Genesis, God discloses himself to his people with different names, but they describe his character. In Genesis 14, he's described, he calls himself God Most High. In Genesis 16, God is described as being the God who sees me. In Genesis 17, God Almighty. In Genesis 21, the eternal God. There's these different descriptions of his character. But now he simply calls himself, and he discloses himself by his personal name, I am. Now there's a couple things that we want to note about this. God tells Moses, his name is I am, because God is always existing. There was never a time where he did not exist or a time when he will cease to exist. Always in the present. But this name also reflects, reflects that he is, uh, it's to be used in a sense that he is able to become, it's, he's described as the becoming one. That's what uh, historians and in, in, uh Scholars will tell you that this is kind of remarking that he is the becoming one. So the kind of a title they assign to this. It doesn't limit his nature like the other names. That he is what he is and he is able to become exactly what you need at that time. I am. He becomes whatever is lacking in our time of need. Now Jesus took the name of God, I am, and he uses this to disclose himself, his own deity, in the book of John. The book of John is laid out by seven I am statements where Jesus makes his claim to divinity by saying, I am, using the same title. In John chapter 8, verse 24, Jesus speaking, he says, You will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. He's He's not just making... Uh, a, a general statement. He's saying that I'm God. I am who I claim to be. In John eight twenty eight, he says, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. In John chapter 8, verse 58, he speaks responding to uh, the Pharisees, the religious leaders there. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. So he's saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what Jesus is making this claim to. So this name is how God discloses himself to his people. Now we see this great uh, elaboration on what God wants to say to his people in verse 15. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice 
And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that will do in it, that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and clothing. You shall put them on your sons and daughters. So shall you plunder the Egyptians. So God elaborates or on the details of his plan. He says, here's, here's everything that's going to go down. Here's everything that's going to happen. He says, you need to go and ask Pharaoh to go out into the wilderness, and he's not really going to like that. The point of the request is to demonstrate Pharaoh's heart. It's to show that he is an oppressive ruler who will not even let his people go for a short period of time even with a promise of return. They will not worship the God that they serve. It's only the mighty hand of God, we're told, that will cause Pharaoh to release the children of Israel. And after God works and stretches out his mighty hand upon the land, then the Egyptians have had enough to the place, verse 21 tells us, that they are demonstrating such pity for the children of Israel that they do not allow the, the Israelites to go away empty-handed. The women are to ask for silver and gold and clothing for their kids. And they specifically send women, and the Lord specifically notes that women are to go do this because that's how decisive of a victory this is going to be. How humbled the mighty rule of Egypt, uh, how much it will be humbled, how much it will fall. It will be to the point where the women can just walk around and be like, oh, I like that, can you have that? And they plunder the Egyptians. It's like this crazy, they, they end up coming out with just, just bankrolling. Enough for their kids, clothing, They carry out this great deed. Now, God keeps saying, I will do these things. But Moses keeps hearing, I don't know how to do these things. Right? So the excuses continue in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. When Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. So what? Moses comes up with these questions like, what if the, the Israelites don't believe me? How can I convince them that you've appeared to me? Now, the interesting thing about this is he hears this whole plan about all these crazy things that are going to happen and God's going to do, but there's not one concern in his mind about like, well, the Egyptians are pretty mighty. Like, it's all about the Israelites and how they perceive him. He's never like, well, Egypt is pretty mighty. How is that going to go down? It's all, he's all focused upon his interaction with his own people. So the Lord tells him, I'm going to give you three signs. Verse 2, the Lord said to him, what is in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it. And it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they do not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, that they may believe, uh, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. 
and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So the Lord gives Moses two signs and then one like preview. He gives him like the trailer for like a plague to come is what happens. The first sign that God says, if you want them to know that you have come, that you have come in my authority, if you want them to believe you, the first thing that you need to do, your first sign, is to take your staff. And the Lord says, what do you got? A staff. Okay, it's in your hand. You're a shepherd. There it is. He takes something that is natural and he works supernaturally in that. And he says, let me show you some of my power. And so the Lord says, throw down your staff, and the staff turns into a snake. Like, so why a snake, right? Well, if you've ever worked with Play-Doh, like staffs turn into snakes really easily. You just bend them a little bit. It's pretty simple. Um, so it's kind of a natural thing. But more than that, is, you know, aside from just being a long straight thing, a, more than that, the snake is representative of the sign. Uh, it's a sign of Egyptian royal authority, right? If you've ever looked at any Egyptian artwork or you've ever uh, seen uh, different hieroglyphics or paintings, there is the classic description or, or the classic image of the pharaoh with a headdress that is shaped like a cobra, right? And that is that, that snake, he would have a diadem also that would be upon his headdress that would be a snake. And whenever Egypt saw that snake, they would know that this is the, the royal symbol, that his, his, it is his authority and power. And so God turns the staff into a snake. And then Moses, he freaks out and he like runs away. <laughs> and God tells him, go and pick up the snake. Grab it by the tail. Which like, you know, if you've ever watched The Crocodile Hunter, like that's like the worst case scenario. Like he always grabs it by the head. You want to grab it by the head because then it can't bite you. And, and if, if you look at, if, if we're really dealing with this Egyptian cobra that the, the headdresses would be modeled after, those things are 6.6 .6 to 9.8 feet in length. So like, even if you grabbed it by the tail, like you're still getting bit. There's no getting away from that. You could hold it out as far as you can, but your arm's like, you know, maybe like three feet or so, something like that. You're still getting bit. Don't grab the snake by the tail. But that's what the Lord tells him to do. This is a demonstration of God's power over nature, his dominion over creation for his purposes. But in turning the, the snake uh, back into the staff, he's essentially giving Moses a preview of what will happen to that Egyptian royal authority. He's going to turn it into just something mundane, something that is, uh, he will humble this royal authority. Now, the second sign is this sign that is described as being leprous. Now, this isn't likely the same condition that we have today that we would call leprosy, but what this demonstrates here, this second sign, is that he, it demonstrates God's authority over disease and sickness. As he puts his hand into uh, his cloak and pulls it out, and it uh, turns leprous, or like snow it's described as, and then puts it back and brings it out again. God restores it, demonstrating his authority. So these two signs would be performed for the children of Israel if they did not believe. The third one is the preview to the first plague here. The changing to the, uh, from water to blood. It's a little bit different. Now, this one isn't actually performed in our text. The Lord has him do too, but here he acts, he, he, he's basically giving uh, Moses a baby step of faith. Like, I already showed you two, so the third one you got to do on your own when I'm not here. You got to get up the courage if, if you need that. Trust in me. For the Egyptians, blood, or uh, the Nile, the river that, that he would draw this water from, was a symbol of their life force. Their cities were built around the Nile. And so turning water into blood symbolizes, again, his power, God's power over the elements, life and death, God's judgment, and it gives us this preview. 
Now, last two quickly. In verse 10, Moses comes with his speech issues. Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. So he literally says here, like, I'm not a man of words. I've got like a, a heavy mouth, heavy tongue. I can't speak. And uh, perhaps he's speaking of his ability to speak Egyptian um, because he's been out of Egypt for 40 years, hanging out with sheep only. But it's interesting because Acts 7 tells us that Moses was mighty in word and deed. He, he had it together when he left. Apparently he had no problem when he was in Egypt. And, and the Lord responds, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. So God responds to Moses with like this uh, list of rhetorical questions. And he says, I will be with your mouth and teach you what to speak. The, the, the response to Moses' uh, fourth excuse here is basically the Lord reminding him of uh, his personal name. Because he says, I will be with your mouth. But essentially, you know, as we said, will be, it doesn't exist in Hebrew. He says, I am is with your mouth. I am able to help you speak. The personal name of God, I am, will be enough for you. I will become what you need in that moment, Moses. His power can overcome any inability that Moses might have felt. Now, Moses finally gets real in verse 13, and he stops with the excuses. He just gets down to it with his objection. Verse 13, but he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Like, he's got nothing else. He's like, no, what about this? What about this? And then finally, he's like, I'm not going to get around this, am I? Like, God's going to keep coming up with these, like, responses. So he just basically says, like, uh, how about not me? Like, just pick somebody else. He's, he, he stops making excuses, and he cuts to the chase. He doesn't want to be involved. Now, God could not have made it any clearer to Moses that his excuses didn't matter. It wasn't Moses' power and authority that would rescue and save the children of Israel, but it was God's. So Moses keeps hearing that he's going to have to do these things, and God's like, no, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to take care of this because you can't. And he finally says, like, no, I'm just not up for it. I cannot do it. Then we find the response of the Lord in verse 14. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Like, that's, that's crazy. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. God allows our questions. He allows us to have these conversations with him. He allows us to make our excuses and be like, Lord, you know, I'm going through a difficult time. I don't know what's happening. How, you know, but he, he, he allows us to, to reason these things out and work them out. He gives us the space as his people to say, I'm going through a difficult season. I'm having a hard time. I don't see how this is going to work out. And then he will respond and say, here's how it's going to work out. Here's what I want you to do. He has a response for all of those things. But when he gives you the response that you're asking for, and then you just say, no, that's something different. Moses, Moses is, uh, his excuses, his, uh, the, the things that he's been dealing with, the anxiety in his heart, they were met by the Lord. They said, Moses, I'm going to be enough. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to help you. I'm giving you these signs to show. I'm going to rescue. And after God providing, it's only just a straight blanket, uh, uh, blanket, <laughs> blatant rejection of God's plan where God finally is like, this is something different now. I'm letting you process out your issues and your problems. I want to have a conversation with you about this. But now... He's just straight unwilling. But finally, God, you know, God, ever patient, just makes this way for Moses. He says, is, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? So he says, your brother, your brother is a Levite. He can do this. Now, right now, it's not important that he's a Levite, but later it will be important because 
he will become the leader of Israel's priesthood. In verse 15, here's God's plan. He says, you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. So we get a future clue of what Aaron's priestly role is going to be like. Uh, Here, Aaron's going to speak for Moses, and Moses is the mediator of the message. He'll get that message from God, and then Moses will tell Aaron, and then Aaron's going to go, and he's going to tell the people and, and lead the people. Moses is still God's chosen instrument, his vehicle by which he will work, but Aaron is a concessionaire. God's still going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish, and it's not, for Moses, he, he thinks that this is a great solution, but essentially God wanted to do greater and more radical things through Moses, but now he just has to split it and be like, he doesn't get to do all the awesome things that God wanted to do through him. He got to lose out on blessings that God wanted to give him, because he didn't want to be obedient. Now we finish in verse 17. Here's the last word that we have to Moses. And God says, And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. So God reminds Moses to take his staff. It's the last thing. Like, hey Moses, you got a staff? Make sure you bring it. The staff is an, it's a symbol of, of his authority given to him by God. Right, the staff is going to turn into a snake, but the staff itself is not a magic wand. It's not like something that he needs. It's a symbol of his authority that God has given to him. It's the simple staff of a shepherd, a blue-collar tool that God will use to humble the mightiest nation on earth. With this staff, he will raise it to cause the the Red Sea to part. He's going to use it to shepherd the children of Israel out of Egypt and into that same mountain, Horeb, where he leads his sheep to meet God here at the burning bush. He will lead his people to that same mountain to meet with God. And so God says, don't forget your staff, Mo." You're going to need that thing. He's being commissioned and sent out with that symbol of divine authority. So Moses was called by God. He made excuses and even objected. But he needed to be reminded that it was God's power that was going to accomplish that which God called him to do. Jesus continues this pattern in the New Testament. If you look at his first disciples that he called to follow him, right? He didn't roll through like the top uh, academic institutions at that time. He didn't cruise into the synagogues. He rolls up to fishermen, a sketchy tax collector, these other blue collar guys. And he's like, hey, come hang out with me. His first disciples were just regular guys. They turn the world upside down because it's not their qualifications. It's not their ability, but it's who they're with. It's God who prepares his people. Jesus prepares his disciples. It's his ability, his power working in his disciples, in you and in me to accomplish that which he's called us to do. We'll end with this last verse, and we'll pray together. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. We're told the description of how Christians ought to minister and love one another and, and to use the giftings that God has given us. We're told, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Like the incarnation, it's not for your own purposes, but for others. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as the one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as the one who serves by the strength that God supplies. 
So we speak and serve with the ability that God gives, not with our own ability. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit works within those who trust in Christ for salvation, Christ and Christ alone. So the Holy Spirit is God and He works within us, Scripture tells us, to have the desire, the will, and the ability to do what He's called us to do. He calls us, He equips us, and He empowers us to go and accomplish that which He's called us to. And so like Moses, we don't want to make excuses, but we want to press into the Lord when the Lord calls our name and says, Moses, Moses. And we say, here I am. We don't have to go through this rigmarole of like making excuses. Be like, I don't see how that's going to work, but let's go. <laughs> let's go, Lord. We're bought by your blood, empowered by your Holy Spirit, sent out, ready to serve you faithfully. So let's pray. Let's ask the Lord do that in our heart together. Lord, we're thankful for your kindness. We're thankful that you prepare your people for great things, difficult things, Lord. And because those things are difficult and because they can only be accomplished through your good work, your empowering, you get all the credit. And so, Lord, we don't want to become confused thinking that when you're asking us to do something, that you're asking us to do something, but that you're asking us to trust you and to watch as the mighty hand of God works. So we're thankful, Lord, that you allow us to be a part of that, to serve you. Open our eyes to see what you're calling us to. Soften our hearts to respond you, how we might serve you with the ability that you give. We love you. Amen.